big books and, and I think there's a moment where Peter says, um, when he's contemplating writing letters, how do I, how do I incorporate e every moment of the experience I'm having on this strange world and send it to be? Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the things I was thinking as I was coming up from Oxford on the bus today, I was thinking, both these books sort of want to do so much, they want to sort of say everything. Is there, is there a sense, and, and both your bodies of work have that sort of, um, sort of joycean sense of... Um, uh, accumulation, but is there a sense where you can exhaust yourself? You run, you run, run out. You've done. Um, you've said everything you want to do in these in these sort of fairly epic, um, ambitious philosophical books. I feel I feel clobbered by the impossibility of of encompassing. Or of translating into words as much of this enormous world we live in. The world itself and the human world with its um, with its certainly complex and sprawling periodic table of possible human emotions. I feel clobbered by the impossibility of trying to translate that into text and leaving out that 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 and at least having this container of little inky squiggles these, these mm -hmm. representations of the world out there uh, I, I, I <laughs> sublime to ridiculous uh, to quote Freddie Mercury, I, uh, I could have wanted it all. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put it. You want it now? Yeah, I want it all. I want it now. Uh, well, again, to quote Freddie Mercury, let me entertain you. This <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> could go on and on and yeah. competitive with each other. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, 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 I started off wanting to do this when I was a kid. Just I, I would feel this visceral compulsion to. To put all of it, um, kind of the stars and what's in your pocket and everything in between. Now it's something kind of um, uh, beyond ridiculous. But, uh, and 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 I still feel this visceral. It's kind of here, not here, or even here. It's here. I want to get it. I want to. turn it into text and I can't and you get older uh, and, 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 and you realise your limits and you learn from reading writers who really can do uh, this aspect of the job this aspect of the job this aspect better than I can uh, that's as as um, so this is going on. It's, it's me sort of indifference, but uh, um, as Ringo Starr said when uh, <laughs> when Lennon described how he wanted the percussion in uh, Day of the Life to go for his bit, yeah. he said, "No, no, now I can't do that. That's not my brain. Uh, that's not my brain." Um, uh, I read some writers doing certain things, which are their fortes and their metiers, and, and, and that's not my brain. And, it, and it's not a matter of discipline and practice. It, it's just not in my 
creative DNA to mm-hmm. pull that up. So, so that door slams, and that door slams, and that door slams. Now I'm still left with a lot of things that I can do and want to do. Um, however, and the things that it pains you to leave out, you mm, can then mm, mm. convince yourself that they'll go in another book someday. Uh, yeah, and you can console yourself with noticing that actually I can do this in this book better, or, or I can do things now that I couldn't have done 20 years ago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as a writer, and I find mm-hmm, mm-hmm. solace in that. And that's why I hope, or, 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 or that's the um, rationale behind hoping that you're wrong about mm-hmm. uh, Book Things being your last book. You can't see the use that you mm-hmm. will be evolving into yet, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they haven't happened yet, they're not mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. However, you can see that the author of um, Under the Skin as he was then couldn't have written The Book of Strange New Things no. uh, or The Fire Gospel mm-hmm. um, and so I sort of hope this process uh, continues life does surprise you, thank God uh, <laughs> and I also think you're omnivorous you're a very omnivorous person um, In how you write, but also how you think. Uh, and God, the music you listen to, most certainly. Uh, and that omniveracity, um, it makes, I suppose, I suppose it does in the animal kingdom. Uh, I think it makes you, it, it's, it's, it's good for your survival prospects. It's a, it's, it's a good strategy, it's not really a strategy, but it, but it is. It's, it makes you flex flexible and adaptable and is an anti-sclerotic. Mm. Um. I, I think another reason why I'm writing poetry is that I don't need to analyse too deeply okay. what the poem is about. I just do it. Whereas when you write fiction, you need to be fearsomely analytical of of the themes and the merits of what you're working on um, otherwise it will be a mess um, and of course there are, there are novelists who just contentedly produce messes and really don't want to think about what it is that they're writing there are such novelists but I, I think both David and myself are people who look at our fictional constructs and think over and over squared and cubed what am I actually doing here and what is it for? But to ask Michelle, I didn't ever ask you this. My first drafts are god awful foggy messes, and I write the mess first and then mm-hmm. uh, go looking for what it actually is about and what it, what's in it isn't a mess. There's that wonderful quote from D.H. Lawrence where he's writing to someone and he says, I've just finished whatever, the, the Rainbow, Sons and Lovers, um, first draft. I'll make it into art now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, um, that's my modus operandi, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, operandus, uh, mm-hmm. exactly. Because if I try to make it into art as I go mm-hmm. along, it would take me a decade and a half to get anything done. Mm-hmm. I, I, I need the mess first then it's a very different process which is when incidentally I can listen to music mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. first time around when I've got the blank screen mm-hmm. not really 
certainly nothing with words, and certainly not music with much music in it. Yeah. Itakemitsu is perfect, mm-hmm. sort of almost musicless music. Yeah. Um, how about you? Uh, do you, uh, do you, you never must continue. It's, um, it's, it's different for each book, but with this book, because for the first time I was writing a very large novel without a map, because I was going on this journey with Peter and didn't know who he would meet and how things would pan out when he met them. I had to write everything in total technicolour, every page, in order to have gone through that journey with him, in order to to sense or to intuit what would happen next. Right. So it had to be publishable prose. Um, and... That's tough to do, um, and of course it's especially tough to do when your wife has cancer and you're taking care of her and you're anxious about what's going to happen with her. So um, it it was an impossible challenge, and um, in retrospect, I mean, if I had known that she was going to be diagnosed with an incurable cancer, I wouldn't have conceived this sort of novel, I would have done something like The Crimson Petal where it was very schematized and I knew exactly what my task was and I had lots of rough drafts which then needed to be beaten into shape. You know, that would have been the wiser sort of book to be writing while my head was filled with grief and anxiety and care. But this was the book that I'd conceived, this was the book that I'd started. And I was several chapters in, and it was just tempting to to keep going. And um, every chapter that I wrote, which was in full Technicolor, I recognised worked, I recognised was good. There was just the question mark hanging over whether I, I could take the next step you know, write the next line because it was blankness all ahead. I mean, I, I knew, I knew what the reveal was with the Oasis. That's about the only thing that I knew. Um, and for most of 2013, I was actually trying to counsel myself that it was all right that I never finished this book. That you know, sometimes life, sometimes shit happens, and your wife gets very ill and you happen to be working on a book at the time and history just proved that that was fated not to be. And it was actually Eva who persuaded me to finish the book um, and made me promise to write six lines a day, um, which I managed for a while. Um, Just six lines. And then I got momentum and I finished it in her, in her lifetime. It's, um, ignore this question if it's tactless, Michelle, please do. Is the distance between Oasis and Earth in any way analogous to the distance between life and what may theoretically be past it? Being beyond it, uh, death or something else. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, the book looks at distances of, of all kinds, um, but even though Eva's last years were were a um, extraordinarily intimate time for both of us, I and mean, we we always had an intimate relationship, but it grew even more intimate um, as I became her carers as well as her husband and um, Eva was a, a no bullshit sort of person so we, we discussed everything yeah. surrounding her extinction and so yes that, 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 that was a very tender intimate time but on, on the other hand when your partner is dying of a disease that you don't have and you know that you're going to outlive her they are on a different planet you know they have got they've already gone somewhere where you can't follow and the book ended up embodying that even though it wasn't planned to Um, is that where the medium of letters I was very taken by, by the letters in a beautiful way but they mediated time that, you, mm-hmm. that Peter would suddenly receive whole mm-hmm. sort of a whole batch of them, and this, these strange missives coming back from Earth about the effectively the end of the world, which I want to ask you both about. Mm-hmm. Something about how writing can communicate this intense, in these intensely different states that you're, you're describing with, with you. Well, to the extent that the book is relevant to my experience, I, I there are things that we obsess about when we are very stressed which retrospectively we wonder why was that so important that it crowded out the things that we really should have been thinking about or valuing at that moment. And when your partner's dying and you, you know that the time that you have with them is very circumscribed, there's an enormous spotlight on that. Just how are you spending your, your minutes of the remainder of this person's life? And every hour that you spend editing and tweaking mp3s or worrying about um, bureaucratic issues or or getting stressed about the state of the plumbing or or whatever Um, it's wasted and yet as human beings we're helpless we we, it's so difficult to rise above um, those concerns and there's a, there's a huge, sometimes almost toxic, level of poignancy hanging over the last years and months of, of one's partner's life. And I guess with Peter's letters, what I'm hoping some readers will understand is that this huge influx of data from, from his wife that he is just not in the right mental state to deal with when he's receiving them because he's got other things on his mind, that those same letters might be incalculably precious to him if he lost her and they were all that he had left and he would then study them as devotedly as as an academic studies the letters of Keats. Mm. Um, But that tragically... He couldn't do that at the time. 
still makes me wince and smile, but um, when he's writing back to B about how well his <laughs> funeral uh-huh. uh, speech went, which you read to me in um, Edinburgh four, four years ago, which I, um, and um, he uses the word, yes, uh, and, 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 and there's this particular engineer, and she was very... Um, Standoffish originally, I'm paraphrasing, but now she's beginning to open up open to me. Up to, yeah. and, and, and just like, just like a typical bloke, <laughs> like me, <Yeah. laughs> he has no idea. Yes, yeah, the and, alarm and, bells, and, and what you want the reader to do. I mean, uh, this this is something that that I, I I found very rapidly when when I was reading the Bone Clocks is that there is this sense as a reader of wanting to, to jump into the text and grab this person and say, no, you idiot, don't do that, or don't say that. Yeah. Um, and I think this is something the Victorians understood really well. And it's something that a lot of serious modern novelists understand less well, the necessity for the reader to be incensed or exasperated by what the characters are doing and saying and the frustrated desire on the part of the reader to to grab hold of these characters and and pull them off the, the, the course that their actions and words are when I reviewed it, I was I I, th- I realised I get people terrible sort of shellacking and I I loved B and, and those glorious sort of letters machine. Don't you realise that the, <laughs> there aren't any houses? The economy's gone down. The Maldives have disappeared, yeah. and yes, just that exactly. feeling of peace, which I clearly I recognised something in myself, and my wife mm-hmm. is sort of looking at me from across mm-hmm. the room, just going. But there are readers who think that that, that beer's a pain, and <laughs> why, why why couldn't she why couldn't she just just she's so self obsessed? Couldn't she just leave Peter alone because he's so brave and wonderful? So because goes Ecuador, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Both of your books had this sense of a, a planet and of characters heading towards oblivion and not quite getting it I mean, in the way we mm-hmm. just talked about with, mm-hmm. with Peter. I wondered how much, how bleak you both feel and, and also both, it's my habit of asking 53 questions in one, but, but about both the quiet, rather quiet, tender endings and, and where human beings can grab some sense of hope. I, 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 See, I haven't read the ending of the Bone Clocks yet. Okay. Uh, the sixth part is somewhat different. It's set in the 2040s, <laughs> and, 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 and it's sort of... Um, I'm glad I read Book Stranger Things. It, 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 it was my reward for having finished this. Right, right. It, it was sort of... Because uh, because I knew if I started, then I, I wouldn't be writing for Fortnite. I'd be reading yours instead. <laughs> um, but I'm kind of glad that... Um, Rather like you wanting to play the Crown Rock to make sure there's no uh, Victorian owl interference going mm-hmm. into uh, Crimson Petal. But yeah, uh, it, it, it's, um, it's it's is it bleaker than Michelle's? Would you say? Um, I mean, uh, well, I suppose Michelle almost picks up at a point, perhaps after your novel, where where it feels like the Earth is over and it's the it's the classic. We need to colonise other planets, and we need to do this through sort of hearts mm-hmm. and minds. And, and mm-hmm. I didn't feel happy. I mean, the, the, the <laughs> also, any more pockets of the planet where civilization is still viable. 
uh, and large swathes where it isn't. I get the feeling from Michel's that actually the lifeboats are sinking. Mm-hmm. I've got one lifeboat left at the end of the book in the form of Iceland. That's mm-hmm. my lifeboat. Mm-hmm. An unsinkable lifeboat. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of cork is, well, cork is about... Uh... Uh, it's about, I mean, the waters are mm-hmm. lapping, I put that up and Higher up the bow. Just, but just get back to kind of maybe the first of your three or four questions. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> um, my bleakness is inconsistent. There are times when I have grave doubts that our grandchildren, children of our grandchildren, will uh, get the or have access to the level of civilization that we've enjoyed. Uh, and its technological fruits. Uh, then there are days when I look back at the long history of people predicting, of people predicting uh, literal or slow future shock Armageddon, uh, and view it almost as a kind of vanity. We want to be the um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. generation that is privileged enough to see the end of time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and people have been in this for thousands of years. Uh, and they're always wrong. <laughs> and what makes us any more right is, yeah, I mean, we're giving the ecosystem a serious fucking over, aren't we? But, but apart from that... <laughs> um, it's a sort of Douglas Adams really? idea of the restaurant at the end of the universe where you can sort of sit and enjoy your meal and then watch the, watch the universe sort of implode and it's, there's something entertaining because we can, we can rewind and then do it again the, the next night. But are, are we, it does feel slightly different. I mean, it, whether it's ISIS or um, the, you know, Gorbachev saying the Cold War's back or, uh, or reading, reading these novels which seem to... Does it not always feel slightly different? Do you have people yes. not always said, well, people have predicted wrong with this time, this time, it's serious. Um, exactly, yeah. And I don't know, and then the next day I think we have a civilization wholly dependent on the burning of fossil fuels, which in Beijing is literally killing you uh, in terms of the air quality, but actually not very metaphorically, it's doing in itself as well, sort of civilization, our civilization which does not yet have a name it seems civilizations only get named, named after yes. <laughs> yes. they've gone by future archaeologists exactly uh, but uh, our, civilization, our civilization is in the car uh, with a hose pipe coming in through the window and its excretions are also the things that are slowly killing it all of this, our presence here the light is and I, 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 I'm, I'm at this point where you've done an interview Many times, and you're clicking into damn it, it's a steal. Yeah. I can't avoid yeah. it. It's something we talked about. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's all because of oil. Uh, we feed ourselves through oil, agriculture being a means of turning oil into food. Uh, we, 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 we get through winter with oil. We, we outsource our memories onto devices that are stored. Uh, on devices, that, uh, on devices that are powered by power stations that are burning up a finite resource, probably more finite than oil companies have an active interest in telling us, in fact. The energy crisis we are dancing, we are waltzing into, uh, appears to have no historical precedent. I, I think there's, there's a level of lunacy even beyond 
what you're describing there because it's not just that all our knowledge is stored on physical devices which are powered by oil. We now have this extraordinary new concept of storing all our knowledge in the cloud. Now, on a metaphorical level, what could be a more perfect Dr. Seuss, um, you know, a homily for children to show them the sheer insanity of, of this species who decided to put all their stuff in the cloud? Uh, you know, it, you, you, you couldn't... I say you couldn't make it up, but, you know, it, it has been made up and it's... Jaw-droppingly stupid. Um, People's obliviousness to the irony. Of, yes, uh, of, yes. Is jaw-dropping. It is, yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. As I look at clouds one day, they, they rain down. Yeah. And, um, and evaporate and all those things that clouds do. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's... The, yeah, uh, there are guitarists, guitarists and critics... Critics, writers, writers. The cloud is 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 is, is the impermanence, impermanence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>